Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. How you doing? Here we are in the pandemic, the throes of the pandemic. But, you know, we are, it is starting to look like it's stabilizing a bit, which is encouraging. I'm going to say that. It's stabilizing. Personally, I don't have that fear of terror of go, uh, like I did about two weeks ago. I hope you guys are doing okay. Um, but you know, I, before uh, I introduce you to my guest, Dr. Grant Brenner, um, incredible psychotherapist, psychiatrist, all that stuff. I just um, want to remind you that, um, you know, Radio Free Brooklyn, you guys need us. We need to be there for you more than ever. And please go to our website, uh, radiofreebrooklyn.org. Uh, check us out. You know, you can get a great T-shirt just by donating a little bit of money. And uh, we've got great programming. So uh, be part of it. Download us on your phone, okay? So I am really, we are really lucky, folks. We have this really amazing, uh, accomplished, credentialed, credentialed, unlike me, as you know, I have no credentials, credentialed therapist and psychiatrist. He has all sorts of, uh, he is a principal, Dr. Brenner, Dr. Grant Brenner is a principal and co-founder of Neighborhood Psychiatry. New York City-based group practice. He's written a bunch of books, including this one that I want to ask him about a little bit, Creating Spiritual and Psychological Resilience, which I think has something to do with trauma 9-11, so he may have some uh, information on that. And uh, he is a board-certified physician, psychiatrist, an entrepreneur, author, teacher, speaker, and non-for-profit board members. He writes this blog, and I, I personally love this stuff that he writes, okay? This, he's already had like a couple of really good articles on psychology during the uh, coronavirus era. But um, on Psychology Today, one of my favorite magazines since college, slash blog, slash experimentations, um, his, you know, he's a founder of neighborhoodpsychiatry.com and his private practice is Grant H. Brenner, MD.com. Uh, Hello, Grant. So good to see you. Hi, Lisa. So good to see you virtually. Um, yes, good to see you again. So can you just, um, so, so our listeners know, and you've been on the show before, I believe, and you've been on other things. We, Grant has done other things uh, for uh, Radio Free Brooklyn and Dr. Lisa. We've done a bunch of things together. Right, right. Uh, so obviously familiar with your work, but why don't you explain um, what your background is to our, our listeners today? Background in, in what sense? Well, like you have a degree in therapy and a degree as a psychiatrist, right? right. My, okay, my professional background. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I went to medical school as a psychiatrist. I'm trained in a medical model. I completed my psychiatry residency at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York here. 
And then I did psychoanalytic training at a place called the William Allenson White Institute. And I've done a number of other um, training programs in, in addition to psychoanalytic training, including focusing on disasters and trauma response, treating dissociative disorders, and working with groups and organizations, among other things. Can you believe we got um, this guy on the show, folks? A, a real, a guy with like real, real training. So did you deal with people during 9-11? Is that what that, I mean, did you deal with that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I volunteered with, a, at the time, the not-for-profit I volunteered with in 2000 uh, was called Disaster Psychiatry Outreach, DPO, uh, has since been acquired by uh, a much larger not-for-profit called Vibrant Emotional Health, which uh, used to be called the Mental Health Association of NYC, MHA of NYC. Vibrant has been around for 50 years, and it was founded by a gentleman who himself had recovered from a psychotic illness and who wasn't a professional. So it's always had a very community-oriented or uh, element to it. Uh, and in addition to the crisis emotional care team, which is what disaster psychiatry outreach it now is, uh, they have the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They have NYC Well, a referral call that they run for the city. They have the disaster distress helpline. They have veteran services. They have community-based services. They have an amazing array of services. Mm. And I'm a member of the board of directors now, which is a, a great honor for me. Oh, wow. So you have dealt with, um, so you actually dealt with people during 9-11. How does this incident, what's going on now, uh, compare to that? Sure. Yeah. That's right. Well, in 9-11, I was running the psychiatric emergency room at Mount Sinai because my boss at the time was the, one of the founders of DPO, and I, I did direct care in the Family Assistance Center and followed up for months afterward with, with people. Um, and I've, I've been on several other deployments as a disaster responder, including going to Baton Rouge after Katrina oh, and wow. going to Bombay after, after the shootings. I, I've consulted in Sri Lanka, and, and we've done distance learning with uh, China after the Sichuan earthquake. And we, we provided trainings after the Fukushima disaster in Japan and, and a variety of other things. Um, for New York, you know, and Sandy also, for New Yorkers, I think the, these, these things are linked uh, in a lot of ways because it, it, it feels similar uh -huh. um, and yet it's, it's very different as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you, I mean, so what's going on? How are people responding? And how is it different? Is it, is it as powerful of a, tra it's a traumatic event, right? What's going on now? Well, it's, you know, it's so different because, uh, first of all, it's going to be very different depending on, you know, who you talk to. So I, I can speak from my personal impression as well as what I've been seeing. People are not in general that I've seen responding as if we were under a terror attack. Mm -hmm. um, the sense I get is that while some people are very, very frightened, other people uh, have a much more casual attitude and are mainly preoccupied with the day-to-day -day difficulty of adjusting to uh, being stuck at home. Mm -hmm. uh, for some people, that's really, really difficult. Um, but I think I think it's a subset of people who are feeling the kind of intense anxiety and threat that we saw after 9-11. And the sense I get is that New York as a community is not pulling together the same way it does 
in the face of a terrorist attack or or even an ordinary natural disaster. Hmm. What do you mean? What I've seen is that. Yeah. Uh, just what? Go ahead. I was asking what. What do you mean by that? And you were, and then I interrupted you from answering. So, <laughs> go ahead. Not a, not a problem. Uh huh. I know. I, no. No. Yeah. So, I've seen some sense of community and esprit de corps, particularly you know at seven p.m. when everyone comes out and applauds mm-hmm. for the healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. That, that's where I get the same sense that I've seen around nine eleven. Um, Though I see when I go out to the supermarket, uh, a great number of people are not practicing what is considered to be proper precautions against transmitting and contracting COVID. And so I think after 9-11, you know, most New Yorkers seem to share the same attitude. Mm. With coronavirus now, I think it's very mixed. Some people are very sort of on board. Others I think also because of political reasons, because there's such a difference in what people believe the actual threat is based on their politics. Other people are not as concerned. Um, And so it's really different because there's a a full gamut of responses from people who are deeply, seriously concerned and others who who almost think it's, you know, a quote unquote hoax. So that's that's really difficult is I mean, that makes the whole situation more difficult that we don't all see it from this similar point of view. Do you think that's because of politics mostly, like how politics are so different now than they were during 9-11? I think politics is one factor. Um, I think the nature of the, the threat and the current messaging environment is another factor. So, you know, there is a lot of messaging that, that maybe this is bad, maybe it's not bad, we don't know you know, how mm-hmm. the mortality rate is. Um, and for most people, it's not affecting them personally, though I, I know plenty of people who either were mm-hmm. sick or had a family member sick or passed away. Right. Um, for those people, it's a completely different experience right. Right. than right. for other folks. And, and so a lot of people are kind of just at home and dealing with basically day-to-day inconveniences and so they're not really feeling the hurt in the same way. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, at the same time, you hear ambulances all the time. And, and uh, I know a lot of people who are working in hospitals and a lot of, um, you know, direct uh, exposure to death and trauma. And those, that's a whole, it's a very different story for them. I mean, that's something that I personally noted because it's actually a very intellectual process in order to really internalize what's going on because like where I live out in Bushwick there's no one around and it's very empty and everything just seems like it's so nice and empty and you know I'm concerned and I'm and conscientious about you know wearing a mask and all that but it's very intellectual it's something I know but something I don't have any sense of I don't hear a lot of ambulances and I think that that is also really disturbing in its own way and and weird. I mean, I think that's part of what you're talking about. It's like such a divide between people on the front lines who are being affected and the rest of us. Is that part of it? Yeah, I think that's part of it. There's not, like I said, a sort of a sense of cohesion. I think with 9-11, it felt like New Yorkers were kind of all in it together, you know, Um, and there was a patriotic response. There's no 
clear enemy here, even though um, the you know a lot of the rhetoric is around fighting a war against you know the this infection, uh, and it does depend where you live and who you know, and, and certainly um, the the numbers of people who are directly affected by COVID-19 uh, seem to be disproportionately affecting some socio socioeconomic yes. classes. Yes. Uh, so depending who you talk to as well, not just healthcare providers, but other other workers' families are affected differently. What do you think is in different kinda, neighborhoods? What do you think is like generally the most triggering thing? What do you think is upsetting most of the people that you see? Astro, shut up! You know what? The 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 the, um, the bell is ringing. My bell is ringing, and the and there's probably somebody here delivering something. Ugh. You know what? I'm going to ignore it. I'm just going to ignore it. Let's, okay. Let's see if we can get, get, let's see if we can keep going. It's probably just sure. up. So anyway. I think little dogs barking, probably little dogs barking is the most uh, upsetting thing to be. Yeah, right, right. It's really obnoxious. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to answer it. In the meantime, um, why don't you describe neighborhood psychiatry? Can you do that for a minute? Because I want to hear about, um, it's a I think it's something that is very, it's a very great service that my listeners need to know about it. So you do that and sure. I'll take care of the door. Thanks very much. I, I like dogs, by the way. Um, so neighborhood psychiatry is a practice that myself and, and colleagues of mine started in 2015. We're in private practice, and we saw that there was a need for people with very common mental health problems like depression, anxiety, disorders, ADHD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and relatively mild but problematic conditions that cause functional disturbances and suffering weren't able to get care using insurance. So we started an organization where people are treated by a team that consists of a psychiatrist and a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and we accept major insurance plans, including Aetna, United Healthcare, Cigna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Oxford. We also have a lower fee out-of-pocket rate, which is reduced right now for COVID-19 affected people, uh, and we're volunteering with the city and some local volunteer groups to provide pro bono services for, you know, qualified essential workers. Uh, so our goal is to provide um, high quality care, but to take insurance. And we have a blended model where we meet with people about once a month and provide a level of psychotherapeutic support in, a in addition to medication management. That is so good to hear about. You know, I'm going to put a big uh, note about that on my Facebook page because I think there's a lot of people that could really use that right now. And I think that's, that's really great. So what do you think about human nature? Like what, what, is, what do you think is the most, like what are people triggered by? What do you think, how do you think it's like, what are the most, uh, you know, the qualities that come up? What are the most what do you hear about the most? What kinds of things? Well, I think it, mortality mm -hmm. salience is important right now. There's a psychological theory called terror management theory, where the sense uh, to, you know, to the extent to which a person feels threatened, uh, they have to cope with that heightened sense of mortality. And people have all different ways of coping with that. Some people you know, develop panic and don't leave the apartment, you know, for a split second. They, um, 
feel like the air is lethal. You know, other people might use more denial and kind of go outside and, and just feel like, well, I guess that, that can't really happen to me or I'm young and healthy, uh, you know, and so on. So, you know, there's a threat to both one's personal safety and, and people close, you know, loved ones. Uh, and so everyone deals with that a little bit differently. Uh, and you can make a case as to, you know, what is a healthy and mature response to that and what uh -huh. is more maladaptive or threat reactive uh, response. So, you know, you see some people are more in kind of a fight flight mode um, uh -huh. and other people uh, handle it in stride. So it kind of goes to the heart of what people, of humanity, which is that basically what we are all having to live with existentially is that we're all going to die. And that's something that, it, that we all have to cope with every day anyway. And so this is sort of triggering that. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's a general kind of existential concern. And then the mortality salience, you know, uh, goes up when there's any kind of threat. Uh -huh. And if you look at something called risk communication, the the way that different types of threats feel is is governed a lot by like the nature of the threat. So if it's diffuse, like um, like a virus is, like if there's no clear place, mm -hmm. then the threat is feels worse because mm -hmm. it's it's the unknown. It's scarier. If it's affecting uh, certain populations, like children you know, the risk will feel higher than it actually is. One of the interesting things with COVID-19 is that children seem to be less affected. So that may lead people to feel less threatened by it overall. Ah, uh, yeah, I could see that. I could but, see that. Right, because the scenario would be very different if children were affected because then you'd be seeing ill children and that would be a whole other thing. Yeah, people so overestimate the risk uh, so if children are involved you know, and so on. Mm -hmm. There's many things that make people overestimate risk. Mm -hmm. So what kind of things, what can people do to like, you know, cope? What, do you, what are good coping skills? Good coping skills. Well, you know, focusing on self-care and maintaining routines, you know, that's what, that's what you hear. Obviously, a lot of people give the same advice because it's good advice. So it's important to make sure that you keep your day-to-day -day going normally, use a calendar, make sure that you keep up your uh, personal hygiene, try to live life as normally as possible, maintain sleep and exercise and healthy eating routines, and you know not to use maladaptive coping, um, like is... excessive alcohol use. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like things that don't actually <laughs> help you. So, you know, too much alcohol, other drugs, um, it, and... The other thing psychologically is avoided coping also is helpful in the short run a little bit, not to think mm -hmm. about things too much. Denial. But when people disengage, it, it, it becomes denial. Avoidance can be harmful. Like I know plenty of people who they're still going out without protecting themselves from infection when they enter like a closed space, like a grocery store. And there is an element of denial and, and I've, I've counseled people, you know, and said, listen, I think, you know, you, you ought to be safer when you go out. Uh, and so you can, you can hear, you can hear people's denial. And then sometimes when you confront denial a little bit, of course, then the underlying anxiety really comes out strong.
Right. And people get angry when you confront them in deni their denial, I think. That's my experience as a pretend shrink. Well, it depends on your way of confronting it and the relationship okay. you have with them, whether they become angry or whether they can also, you know, hear you. It's cer certainly not meant as an accusation. Uh, I think if right. it comes from a compassionate place, it's different. And if you know the person, but certainly it brings out the underlying anxiety, yeah. which can turn can also turn into anger um, right, because right. people are realizing what they're what they're really feeling, um, and especially uh, one of the things one of the basic principles of of, of crisis is that the average uh, kind of educational level um, of your of your audience is is lower by about four grades than in a non crisis mode. So, you know, when you talk to people, you have to remember that we're not processing information as well as we usually do. Oh, is and that so that right? also makes, yeah, that, that's, that's what, what the research shows. What do you mean by that? Shows. Because, because I know a lot of people are having trouble concentrating. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons people are having trouble concentrating, because stress, excessive stress causes cognitive problems. Those oh. excitatory like neurotransmitters make the, oh. the frontal cortex of the brain not work as well. And when people are, are confronted with a conflict that they can't resolve, it also impairs reasoning through uh, part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. Oh, that's good. Um, so we can all have a, we can all give ourselves a break because that's yeah, what's, you wanna, it's, it's, we're under extra stress. So just chill out guys. Things are going to go like I made a few mistakes on stuff I was writing today, probably because of the coronavirus stress. Right. Right. You could. You, you, oh, you well, could. I'm giving you could tell yourself. That. I am. <laughs> I am. So, what's your opinion on this? I kind of broke up people's experiences into people who are in relationships, living with another person, or I guess you could say roommates. And then people who are completely alone, and then people who are with children. It seems like those three experiences are very, very different. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think that's that's one that's one set of dimensions. Yeah, and I think those are big ones. The people who are completely isolated and the people who are with people uh, and then the people who are with, with kids and families. Uh, of course, there's groups in there. There's, you know, people yeah. who are older who need more help and so yeah, on. Yeah, people uh, in then, nursing yeah. homes. I mean, that's not the entire, that's not everyone, but it seems like from well, what I can tell, those are three major groups that have very different, ex that are going to have very different experiences. So to that's me, that's true. But if, if you're elderly living alone, it's very different than if well, you're younger and resourced, of course. Oh, of course. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But like the thing that seems the hardest to me, and I want your opinion on this, the thing that seems really, really hard to me, and um, you might even be in this category, you have children, right? Yeah. Um, so I think people with children, you know, I think that's really hard. Do you, I think that's, that to me seems like the hardest situation because you're not used to having them around all the time and their lives are structured outside the home mostly during the day. What do you think? 
I think, you know, I think that's challenging for a lot of people, uh, especially if they're working and trying to deal with their kids' right. uh, schedules when they're trying to do homeschooling and the school is trying to figure it out and maybe they have staff members who are sick. Um, that can be very frustrating for people if they sort of try too hard. You know, if you're perfectionistic about it, uh -huh. uh, it makes it worse. But even under the best of circumstances, it's challenging for a lot of people. What I've seen over the last few weeks is that people are starting to relax a little bit about how intense they are, oh. including workplaces. The workplace is starting to give more accommodations, like mm -hmm. giving people extra time. Um, mm -hmm. So in that in that regard, I, I, I think businesses are trying to help, though they're also, you know, cutting salaries and laying people off. Yeah. So do you think that, um, like, if you're a parent, like, if your kid just doesn't learn the entire thing they're supposed to learn during the school year, just let it go? Don't worry about it right now? Well, I think, I think it's very individual. You know, um, mm -hmm. for some people, that idea is just too much for them to think, just to let the whole year go. Will it really matter in the long run? You know, probably not. Kids mm -hmm. tend to catch up. Um, on the other hand, it can be helpful to have something concrete to be worried about. Um, but in general, I think it's it's good to focus on the things that you can accomplish. Mm -hmm. So if learning the curriculum is not going to be um, that easy to do, but you can take it as an opportunity to help your kids develop better, you know, self-study habits, ah. then, you know, focus on what you can accomplish. I mean, to me, it also seems like this will be a good way for parents to also, I mean, the relationship with parents and kids is different. I mean, it, 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 there's probably a lot of good stuff that comes out of that, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's where I'd, I'd focus people's attention. And, and that's what I try to do is to look at opportunities for the family to grow closer, to spend more time together, um, and to, you know, to enjoy and, and, and honor and value the, the time together. Uh, to the extent that people are able to do that, I think that's the best approach is to see it as an opportunity. And you know what? It's really strange to us in our hectic modern lives where we're running around all the time. But, you know, throughout human history, it would be pretty normal for families to be together in yeah. a, a tight knit unit, uh, you know, during times of, of difficulty, the winter or during, you know, pandemics. So right. I, I think it's kind of wired into us to take advantage of this time. Right. Except probably with more extended families and neighbors and stuff. But. So what yeah, about, you have more help with things. So have you seen um, have you seen people like me, people who are like sequestered with their partner, who like have extra pressure? That's where I fit in, folks. My, you know, my husband was sick for like he got it, and he was sick for um, you know really sick for like one night, but then he was home for like three weeks and it was really tense. Have you seen people like couples? That's got to be hard when it's just the two of them or uh, but I also see a lot of people saying, oh, this is so great. I'm getting to spend time with my partner. My partner's so fabulous. So what kind of stuff do you yeah. hear? Well, you know, it really, it varies a lot, right? For, for people whose relationship was solid in the first place, probably they're more resilient to any kind of stress. 
Because, you know, relationships have stress. It could be an illness, could be a financial issue. Um, so the way couples face any kind of adversity together is, is often telling. For couples where there's underlying conflict, then a situation like this is an opportunity to work on those issues to get along better, but it also runs the risk that they'll be at each other. Uh, I think it's very important for people to be open and thoughtful and, and you know, and plan, planful, intentional mm-hmm. in approaching mm-hmm. situations mm-hmm. like this. So definitely I recommend that people sit down and talk out how they want to handle it together uh, instead of, you know, being in denial or avoiding the issues until they blow up. Mm-hmm. And what about... Um... But, like, it seems really against human nature or, you know, it seems unreasonable to um, be stuck in one, you know, especially in New York City. You got people in small apartments. I mean, doesn't that just seem like no one could, there's part, part of me thinks no one can function. No couple could function in that situation. What do you think about that? Do you think it's just really hard? I, you know, I, I think that couples can deal with situations like that mm-hmm. typically, uh, though I'm not, I'm not sure how well like equipped we are in modern life because there's so much about our, you know, DNA as couples in places like New York that are about relationship dysfunction. But if you think about people being cooped up together, you know, pioneers right. who are, you know, trying to forge, you know, the old West or uh, people who work in isolation situations on uh, polar expeditions and, you know, long ships, uh, long trips at sea and and stuff like that. I I think we are capable of getting along better under conditions like this, but it it requires like some extra attention, you know, and that's where I think a lot of couples in urban settings aren't necessarily geared for that because they're used to kind of going out all the time and having you know being thing. able to leave leave the apartment yeah yeah you're right having your own thing yeah we we i'm i i feel like i we took constructive efforts we i actually got our i actually went back to uh ha- having weekly meetings with our couples therapist i got our therapist involved and Phil's also back going to his studio every day. So things are better with us. But getting our therapist involved right. really, really helped because we have gone on and off. We do checkups. And now that we are going going again, it really, it's like an outlet. It takes some of the pressure off. So that's helped a lot. But we did have to kind of rethink our relationship a little bit. I think there is an adjustment, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you did that. and. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. So uh, it, it certainly can be kind of like a, a crisis for the relationship where people either fight a lot more and it's really toxic and you can't really leave or, you know, they learn how to get along better or th- or they revisit their sources of resilience, like checking back in with a couples therapist. Yeah. I think some people will will try to maintain the status quo for as long as they can as well. See, that's a great, and and we're offering you neighborhood psychiatry, which would be a great place, a great resource for something like that, right? But we don't we don't, don't necessarily do offer couples therapy, you know? but we work with individuals if they're under stress and they need help on an individual basis, because a oh. lot of times that makes a big difference too. 
Oh yeah. I mean, I th actually my first, the first session with the couples therapist was just me because it, you know, Phil wasn't feeling that well and it was just really helpful to get some perspective on how I was feeling. And ultimately in a couple, you need to take responsibility for yourself anyway, right? You've got to do as yeah, much I, as you can to make the relationship work. Personal responsibility. Yeah, it's important to know where, yeah, sort of where to draw the line. We've, I've worked on some relationship books with, with yes. colleagues. Uh, one of them is called Relationship Sanity. And we talk about something called the 40-20-40, where you focus 40% of your attention on yourself, and then the other person focuses 40% of their attention on themselves. And then this middle 20%, which, you know, doesn't have to be exactly 20%, is where you devote yourselves to the relationship. And you almost think of the relationship as a, as a child. You know, right. the relationship is like a, a third, third partner. Right. Yeah, and that's where a couple of therapists can help because they can really, they're sort of like, you know, the Lorax in Dr. Seuss. He speaks, uh -huh. I speak for the trees. <laughs> you know, the couple's therapist should should speak for the relationship. the relationship. Right, right. But, but I mean, like, I guess the idea of getting help is always a good thing. Like, people need, this is a difficult yeah. time. It's, it's a good time to get help if you need it. Um, and then people was, have trouble asking for help and people have trouble knowing, you know, that they that they quote unquote need help as well, especially people who have invested themselves in feeling self-sufficient. You know, a lot of people who were raised in, in difficult households growing up, we needed to learn to fend for ourselves and sometimes even kind of make sure our parents were OK if they mm -hmm. weren't doing very well as parents. And so people who grew up with a lot of childhood troubles often have an exaggerated sense of self-sufficiency, which uh, can really come to the surface if you're living together with someone oh, where you really need to have each other's backs. Oh, that makes so much sense. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I do, I have thought about, there are a lot of people that really hate asking for help. They just do. But I can see how that, where that would come from. That's very interesting. Right. Huh. Why do you think people hate asking for help? I think, uh, I think it has a lot. I don't know. I think that um, they don't, you know, it's trust usually. What do you think? Or you know better than me. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> well, I mean, trust, trust is, is one of the issues. Of course, where does, where does difficulty with trust come from? You know, safety with other people is, right. is an underlying issue. I think a, one of many useful concepts to think about is, is how comfortable a person is with compassion. And if, if people want to look it up, there's something called the fear of compassion scale. And, you, you know, this can be strong medicine. So if it's mm -hmm. triggering, you know, stop and, and get help. But, we, but the scale looks at three different dimensions. One is self-compassion. Another is receiving compassion from others. And a third is giving compassion to others. And so when it comes to asking for help, that can feel very vulnerable for people. And mm -hmm. they can take it as a sign of weakness or it can feel like um, they're going to they're gonna owe someone something, um, that they're going to get taken advantage of, to your point about trust, mm -hmm. and, and a variety of other things where impaired ability to, to give, receive, compassion gets in the way of help uh, seeking behavior. Huh, you have to feel safe with people. Huh, interesting. I think actually asking for help or like getting a therapist involved is, is very, a very self-reliant thing to do. 
because you're taking charge yeah. of it. But, well, um, I mean, to the, mm-hmm. yeah, the trust and safety issues, because a lot of times when people uh, grew up with troubled, you know, childhoods, they they don't aren't very uh, aren't very practiced at picking people who are good for them. Oh, right, so, right, right, right. That makes so much sense. Right. So you get into these cycles and then and then you've, you're like, I don't know who I can trust and who I don't know, don't know how to trust. M- many right. folks I've known in therapy, they're kind of like, how do I learn how to trust people? and not get gas gaslighted again. And so therapists are supposed to be people who you can kind of more likely to be trustworthy out, out of the box. You right, know? right. Uh, though right. it's not always true. Yeah, but it you would yeah. But also the relationship is very simple or very concrete. It's very defined. Um and it's then boundary, yeah. Yeah, boundaries. Yeah. And I was thinking about um so people living alone, like I was thinking about, I don't know, this is how you tell me, but this is how I broke it down in my uh, self-proclaimed psychotherapist's head, which is there's like, there are people who are, you know, self-sufficient or introverted, totally happy being alone and all that. And that's how it is for them. And maybe they have relationships from time to time. But I think there's also a group of people that have a real problem with intimacy and they really don't want to have a primary relationship. And their way of being with people is by having a lot of people and going out all the time. And I think those are the people that are going to have a hard time. But you tell me what you think. You're an expert. Well, yeah, I think true introverts, you know, do pretty well in a situation like this. And people who are very extroverted also tend to have difficulty because they they can't get that need met very easily. Uh, And, you know, video conferencing doesn't quite quite do the trick for a lot of people. Um, And you're talking about people who have some kind of conflicted need Mm -hmm. where they both want closeness, but for emotional reasons are either afraid of intimacy or have difficulty establishing intimacy and so that's going to um, stir up a lot of issues for them beyond just what an extrovert might feel because it's also going to bring up all their difficulties around attachment style right uh, to use the technical term yeah so sometimes we we talk about people having a secure attachment or an insecure attachment there's different kinds of insecure attachments there's an insecure attachment, which is anxious or preoccupied, where people are quote unquote clingy. So if someone doesn't text you back right away, you start uh, hearing from them, is everything okay? Are you mad at me? <laughs> and then there are people who are more dismissive, who act aloof. And some of those people don't really need connection as much, but some of those people need connection, but have trouble recognizing that need. Right. Um, and right. so- they they can they can also have a disorganized attachment where you see right. preoccupied as well as withdrawn or dismissive reactions and I think you're right I think people, people when people are isolated the way they are now that's going to bring up a lot of maladaptive behaviors um, so people in situations like that might be more inclined to um, fall into a depressive state or start or using drugs and alcohol uh, yeah or start binge binge watching shows too much or mm-hmm. maybe get into compulsive use of pornography mm-hmm. or masturbation mm-hmm. or start um, connecting with a lot of people online in ways that end up 
making them feel worse rather than supporting their sense of community. Mm-hmm. basically sort of reenacting those patterns, but under the pressure of being isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, a lot of people are really getting to know themselves a lot better. And, ha- and some people are probably dealing with those issues too, hopefully in a, in a constructive way. Yeah, Appreciating I, th- I think other it's an opportunity more. for that. Yeah, like where you really appreciate other people more. I mean, I personally feel that way. I've noticed you know, you notice like who, who's really helping you cope and, you know, reaching yeah, it out separa- to Yeah, it sort of separates the wheat from the chaff. Oh, um, you know, you know, you find out who's really important. And I, I also think, I think you're right. You said something that I think is very important to highlight, which is that, again, it's an opportunity. So people can kind of decompensate, you know, to use the psychiatric term mm-hmm. and get worse in isolation. But it's also an opportunity to take a break from sort of crazed, uh, compulsive dating and, and, and get sober from dysfunctional relationships for a couple of months. And especially if they're in therapy, really use that time um, as a break uh, right. to learn what's happening. Yeah. And maybe re-enter social relationships a, a bit wiser. Yeah. Uh, though, of course, it's always, you know, a bit of an experiment. Yeah, it is. Which um, I was, so I wanted to know what your thoughts were, because this is a big experiment, isn't it? I find this sort of on a, a certain intellectual level pretty fascinating what's going on. Like, this is like such a um, petri dish for human behavior. And I was wondering, like, what your, per, you know, I mean, no one knows, but just, you know, you're, you're an expert. So what are your feelings about how society is changing and what's going to come out of it? Like just your, whatever it is that you're thinking. Have you, if you've had it, I'm sure you have thoughts about it. I'm guessing you do. Sure. I just, I'm, I don't have such an interesting response. I don't think, um, I, I think, I think it's too soon to tell. Mm-hmm. My experience with disasters tells me that, in in the uh, sort of acute and subacute phase of a disaster, you know, it's very hard to make long-range predictions. Mm-hmm. I remember I saw a, a piece of news. It seems like, you know, months and months and months ago from Adam Schiff, but I think it was last week where he said, <laughs> we should legislate that we have to learn from COVID-19 for the future. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. <laughs> you know, we should try to learn. But half, you know, half, half the world doesn't seem to want to. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't really know whether anything is going to be better or not. You know, right. we've been in such a state of conflict as a country over, over the presidency in the last election that, you know, I just, I can't really tell collectively. And right. economically, I think it's going to make a big difference. You know, people are talking about the end of globalization, I'd, I'd like to say that it's more likely to be the beginning of globalization mm-hmm. because an event like this tests all of our systems. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a fire drill um, it's, or a tabletop exercise is what they say in disaster response. And this mm-hmm. has been almost like a perfect tabletop exercise because in spite of the terrible tragedy of all the loss of life and suffering and, and plight of healthcare workers, um, the, the amount of actual 
mortality is relatively low, though we don't know the real numbers yet. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's not like the Black Plague that killed 25% mm -hmm. of the population or even yeah. HIV, which the human toll was far, far, far greater. Oh. And I think that's because we've made a lot of progress that something less extreme has a bigger impact on us. You know, some people kind of uh, are doom and gloom, like the human species is facing extinction, which I, I think there's there's good reason to think <laughs> about that to prevent it. But on the other hand, the way we respond to a small amount of suffering is much greater. So you can easily see this if you look at um, wars. You know, the first two world wars, tens of millions of people were killed in Korea and Vietnam, it was tens of thousands of people. And in the recent conflicts, even though they're kind of festering all the time, if, you know, 100 people die or a few soldiers die, you know, people are really focused on it. So I like to think that's a sign of progress. And I'm, I'm hoping mm. that we're gradually learning and, and, that, and that this will be another learning experience. I just think for some people, if you can see how sort of how much better things seem like they could be, much more quickly if everyone was just a little more on the same page, it feels like it's never enough. Mm -hmm. But I hope this moves the needle a little bit. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like two really good things have come out of it in that, like, it is, it is really heartening to see how people have come together to, you know, do the social distancing and cooperate as well as they have. And uh, the other thing is, just on an instinctual level, it you know, I keep thinking the earth, the earth is round, <laughs> you know, like that whole idea that we're all on the same piece of land. And it does. Right. Well, if we could see ourselves as a family. Yeah, but it, it does make you feel a lot more connected to everybody. Like the people in Iran are having the same disease that we have and the people, you know, all over the yeah. world, we're all human. It shows how it shows how we are all the same species, which a lot of times... Well, I generally feel that way personally, but yeah. I think for other people, you know, they don't feel that way. I, yeah, I, I don't think so. Another thing I was thinking about, I want to know your opinion on is, um, I, you know, we're talking about how people are really split, you know, how they're reacting because of politics and people in the red states and all that stuff. So um, it seems to me like um, it's been slower to reach the rural areas, the red states and stuff like that. But once it gets there, do you think that will wake them up, that they'll have, it'll be more real and tangible? I wonder about that. Well, I mean, wake them up. I mean, wake them in, in what my sense? opinion, in my opinion, like, I think that, um, the people that are following Trump say, this is my, I don't know, you tell me, but um, I feel like they have this <laughs> magical, I'm not used to talking to an expert, to a real therapist, um, except when I'm paying them to talk about me. Uh, so. Well, wait, hold on. What? <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. Uh, never mind. Never mind. Go ahead. Go oh ahead. well. Anyway, I actually will. I'll, I'll actually make a donation to Radio Free Brooklyn yeah. after this. Oh, so uh, that part of the web page is down, by the way. Is it really? Oh my God. Okay, I'm gonna I tried try it earlier. We'll send you a link. Um, thank right, you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, the thing is, is that um, 
Okay, so in in the Trump in the Trump country, which I'm imagining is a lot of rural places and stuff like that, I feel like they all have this sort of um, what am I trying to say? This sort of like they believe in religion in a certain way and an authority figure. It feels like magical yeah. thinking, and I think they think about Trump that way, and I think they think about the virus doesn't seem real because it doesn't seem real. And so I'm wondering that if the virus actually shows up, if it will make them reconsider their perspective, Uh, it could break the spell of magical thinking about their leader. What do you think? Right. I think that is, I think that is highly unlikely for the majority. (laughs) Uh, I I think, I I think, you know, it's funny. You know, what you mentioned is, I think, valid. Um, I recently, one of the blogs I wrote uh, a few weeks ago was, was about this issue. And I had seen some research that really interested me. One showed that people tend to look for leaders in people who resemble their God. So oh. if your idea of God is an older white male, then that, that's who they want for leaders in, in business and political life. And they, this research group conducted seven studies that kind of showed that. And then there's another connection with uh, open-mindedness and authoritarianism. And they found that people who are less uh, open-minded are more likely to gravitate toward right-wing authoritarianism and accept, uh, you know, very restrictive leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think... I don't I don't think it's very often that people will change what they believe to be true because people will exclude um information that you know mm. contradicts right what they already believe. Right. There's also something really interesting that I'll just throw in the mix mm-hmm. called the illusory truth effect which mm-hmm. kind of explains fake news. It it's it's when you hear something repeated over and over again and you think it over and over again it just feels more true. Uh, and that makes sense evolutionarily because if something happened over and over again in the real world, like, you know, if every time like lightning struck a tree, it caught on fire, you would think lightning causes fire. Um, but in the social reality world, people can repeat falsehoods, but they will end up feeling true. So. Right. Yeah, I could see that makes sense. I don't want to um, ignore one really important factor in all this anxiety that we haven't touched on, and that is uh, financial instability, and that um, obviously people are losing their jobs, and even if they do have their jobs, the future of their work is unstable. I mean, um, I think that is that is really difficult, and um, I have a lot of you know compassion for that, and um, I've been there. I'm not there at the moment, but I have really been there. And uh, I don't know how people deal. I suck at dealing with that, by the way. That's why I've always like had like a corporate, I've always like, I've done everything I can to have a job with health insurance, no matter what it costs me uh, mentally. But um, what, what, do you have any ideas about what can we say to those people? Say something hopeful. Help me out here. I don't have anything hopeful to say to them. (laughs) 
I mean, emotionally, right. do you think like resilient people, I, you know, like I do have one friend who got a, who I'm thinking of, for example, got a pay cut, you know, everybody in that they're working with got a pay cut. And I said to her, and I believe this is that she is a very, she, she's a very smart, very like thoughtful survivor type person, very marketable. People want to hire people like that. And I think she'll be fine no matter what, because that's how I think she functions. But what can, do you think that's helpful? Like, what do you think about that? People working, do you think, what, what's, how, can you help us with that? Uh, yeah, that's a big ask. I, I think I think the nature <laughs> I of the na I think the nature of work is really in question right now because if if you work in an industry where you can work from home easily, you know that feels a lot more secure. Though a lot of companies, just because of the general economic climate, are are cutting back. Um, but certainly, people who depend on kind of in-person jobs are going to have to think about how they want to work if we're going to be facing more um, pandemics like this, oh, they've been getting more frequent over history. Oh. So next time there's a pandemic, I think, you know, we'll be, we'll be ready to kind of go into quarantine mode much more quickly. Um, and then I think the government is going to have to get up to speed on how to manage the, uh, you know, situation with unemployment. And, um, you know, I know people are critical of how our, federal government has handled things and other countries seem to be, you know, responding much more quickly to, to offer direct support to people. Uh, I know some people are getting support. Other, other people are waiting for it. And I know the unemployment rate is going up quite a bit. Um, I think there are, there are situations and I, I hope this is where, what people's experience is where there's a lot more flexibility on the part of landlords, you know, in terms of collecting mm -hmm. rent uh, mm -hmm. and help from neighbors. I think this is also a good place where it's important to be resilient and reach out to everyone in your community to ask for help as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's one of the silver linings is that most people are good natured and willing to help. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, our government, so you think pandemics are going to become more common, which kind of makes sense, right? And do you think our government is going to get better at, man that's part of the problem we're having now is that our government isn't set up for this. It's not anyone's personal, there's nothing anyone can do about it personally. It's just our society is not set up for this, the infrastructure. Well, I think I think pandemics are getting a bit more common over 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 history if you look at the frequency of events. But mm -hmm. I think part of it is the way our government handled it. But and maybe this varies, you know, in different parts of the country. But I think some of it is also how the population is, because there are some countries where if you tell everyone, you know, stay steer clear of each other, wear masks, you know, the next day everyone is 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 communally minded. Um, New right. Zealand, I think, shut things down really fast. There's certain countries in, in the East that responded that way. But I, I have to say, I feel a little disillusioned living in the lower part of Manhattan, where I still go outside and the majority of people, even inside of crowded groceries and supermarkets, are not only not wearing masks, but I tried to go shopping yesterday and I saw a, a guy who was sneezing and coughing, standing online to get into this local supermarket. And I just kind of you know, I, I aborted that mission and, you know, went back, you know, today, but 
So I think it's not just the government. I think the government also reflects the people. And, mm -hmm. um, Where you know, I, I hope in the future people will be more cooperative. But hmm. from what I've seen, I'm just not sure, huh. at least in this country. Well, you know, it's really interesting because I'll tell you, out in Bushwick, I've had a very, very different experience. Um, people, That's what I've heard, yeah. Yeah, people, and, um, you know, they have a lot of working class families, uh, different races. It's not like all educated, you know, imagine Manhattan, all educated people. It's not like that. And I. Not, 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 not where I live. It, it, you know, so maybe it goes back to that question about who's single and who has families. Uh, I'm not sure, though. I'd be curious, like, what characterizes someone who, who doesn't think uh, that's important or not, you know? I think, like, single people are more likely to not, they're just, like, more cavalier about stuff like that because they don't have kids, maybe, or they don't have that family sensibility. I'm hesitant to, like, draw that conclusion, but yeah, that's course. sort of one of my soft <laughs> observations is that a lot uh -huh. of times it's either younger, younger people, uh, younger yeah. couples. Yeah. Or, or it's it's who look to be single older people. Um, in both cases, yeah. where I saw people who were visibly ill in public, they were both appeared to be single older people. Huh? Oh, people in denial. You know, that's a whole thing. I think. Okay, so oh god, we've only got two minutes left. Um, I was going to say it's like maybe older single people who are in denial because they're not dealing with things. So I'm just going to make a judgment, a real judgmental statement. So they haven't dealt with things, which is why they're still single and why they're in denial about what's going on in the world and everything's going to be fine. But um, I wanted you to um, give us your, uh, you know, give us your uh, links again and neighborhoods. Tell us, tell us where to find you and find neighborhood psychiatry, if you please. Sure. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure what the cause is just of your last speculation. It's definitely something to think about. And yeah. maybe there will be some research. I'd like to see some research on that. Um, I think that's a good opportunity in this pandemic for academics is to collect research um, yeah. and see sort of what we can learn for the next time. For sure. Uh, so neighborhood psychiatry, uh, which is the insurance-based practice where we have psychiatrists and nurse practitioners working together. I don't see patients there, but neighborhood psychiatry's link is neighborhoodpsychiatry.com. My private practice is grantHbrennerMD.com, and the blog on psychology today is called Experimentations, Great. and I'm Grant Brenner. I'm so grateful that you did this. We packed in so much information in hours. Fabulous. So I just want to say thank everybody for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. I'm here every Thursday, 2 to 3. Uh, you can check out our archives and um, stick around because we've got great programming this afternoon. We always have Elon Danziger with Lost and Rewound right after this. And uh, we've got, um, you know, Tom, the station director, does frequency theory tonight. And, you know, it's just some great local music coming up. So stick around.